From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Sydney Carbonic and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. Whether you're a student, a parent sending your children off to the big yellow bus, or if you've long since left academia, that bite in the September air reminds us all that school is back in full swing. So this week, we're kicking it old school, bringing you an archive from 2016, where two Terranformers spoke to Alberta students about environmental education and sustainability awareness. Then, we'll air another archive piece about the pros and cons of changing constitutions to involve the environment. But first, here are this week's environmental news headlines. In the city of St. Albert in Alberta, an invasion of koi fish in the Combe Lake has gotten out of control and the city has decided to eradicate this invasive species. The large koi population is likely due to people dumping unwanted fish pets into the body of water. St. Albert environmental coordinator Melissa Logan explained that the invasive fish would be destroyed on Wednesday, September 5th by treating the pond with a chemical called rotenone. This chemical is said to interfere with the fish's respiration, but will not harm any of the mammals. By eradicating the koi in the infested pond, they will be prevented from spreading to water treatment facilities that connect to the Sturgeon River, where they could then interfere and compete with native species.
On Wednesday, September 5th, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to discuss the next steps for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was delayed by a court ruling several weeks ago that reversed a decision to allow construction of the pipeline. At an event before the meeting, Rachel Notley stated that her government's officials were developing strategies to restart construction of the pipeline while still respecting the federal court ruling, though details of these strategies were not given. Trudeau stated that further consultation and study is needed as per the court's ruling, and that legislative tricks used to hasten the construction of the pipeline will simply result in further legal disputes in the future. A project started by the City of Ottawa is aiming to reduce carbon emissions by helping cars and drivers to better predict when to brake for traffic lights. We've all done it, accelerated towards a green traffic light in the hopes that we'll make it through, only to have to slam on our brakes. This wastes gas, creating extra carbon emissions, and wears on the car's brakes, not to mention the added traffic stress. This Ottawa project plans to remedy this waste of gas and carbon emissions by having the traffic lights send signals to cars to help drivers know when to brake. Last year, the City of Ottawa partnered with Transportation Canada and the Ontario Ministry of Transportation to carry out a pilot project using the traffic lights along a 6 kilometer section of one of the city's busiest roads. Data was transmitted from the traffic lights to a select group of test vehicles. Ottawa's Director of Traffic Services told the National Observer that during non-peak traffic hours, they saw a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in the range of 7% to 15%. The second phase of the project will involve the entire city and will provide real-time traffic data from all traffic lights to this experimental system, with the data being transmitted to all City of Ottawa municipal vehicles. Now, here's our first archive piece for this week. Right now, sustainability education is becoming more and more prevalent in schools, but we still have a long way to go. In 2016, Nicole Richard and Paula Daza spoke with the teachers of Brightview Elementary School and the students of the Sustainability Club from Cochrane High School about how students can be inspired by sustainability and environmentally focused education. Nicole and Paula, students from the University of Alberta, incorporated this type of community engagement into their own degrees through their project called We the Future. Could you first describe um, what you think about when you hear the term sustainability? I think something that has long-term impact for, for anybody, for students, for the staff, for the community in general. A lot of people think of sustainability as just recycling, but in reality, the issue is a lot more complicated. UNESCO introduced 17 different sustainable development goals. These goals range from dealing with economic development to addressing social issues and protecting the environment. Issues such as gender equality and poverty are just as much a part of sustainability as recycling is. One of the goals that UNESCO identified was quality education. 
students and teachers around Alberta are already finding innovative ways to integrate sustainability into the classroom. We look into some of the projects that have been done by these schools and the impacts they have had on the teachers, students, and the school community. From Brightview Elementary, we spoke to Linda White about the work she's done to promote sustainability at her school. Brightview Elementary is a school of about 200 students from kinder to grade 6. The school is a part of the Kenora community in Edmonton. When we first came to the school, one of the first things we saw were outdoor science projects that students were working on. At the front of the school, there were lots of tree stumps and boulders arranged in a cluster. Near the cluster was a metallophone and a peace pole. We've had gardening clubs at our school, I've had um, solar energy clubs that I've done with grade 3 and grade 6 students, we've had, um, we planted potatoes in the, in the corner sign in the summer and harvested the potatoes in the fall, been doing whatever we can to help the kids understand about just their environment and their responsibility in it because they are our future. One of the other projects Linda was involved in was the creation of a naturescape outside of the school. We sat in the naturescape with her as she described its many uses. This is an outdoor classroom and it is used year-round. We have uh, conducted Remembrance Day ceremonies in, in the naturescape. This has been used for meditation, for art. We have a, a metallophone that we just installed in the, I think that was the spring of last year, might have been the fall. and. At the end of the day, that's when you'll see kids out here playing. They, they can use sticks on it, whatever they want to play music. And I teach students in grade two, grade one, two, and three who have special needs, and we use this um, primarily for science. There's uh, a, a natural habitat here. There are more ladybugs than you could ever count underneath the cedar mulch. The uses out here are are endless. You can do whatever you want out here. Linda described the process of developing the naturescape. She told us about how students were involved in designing and building it. We sent home templates with the kids and the, the kids and their parents sat down and they decided what would go in here and some wanted waterfalls and ponds and we said well that wasn't going to work but for the most part they understood you know the plant life and just making it a usable space. So I mean it's it has been so well received and um, Every single person in school either shoveled or planted or helped with the planning or, um, or just gave some feedback and it was just a real group effort. And it was not a clean project but they literally dug in both hands and if there wasn't a shovel or a wheelbarrow to be had they were using their hands and lifting it up. My initial plan when I thought of this seating I was picturing kids just sitting here and listening to me talk and the first time I brought them out here they started hopping from stump to stump and I momentarily was thinking this was not part of my plan so their imaginations came through and that has been incorporated in here. They see a dozen other uses for this naturescape than I see it. I see it from a teacher point of view, but they see it from a child point of view and getting out in nature. And that was really the point, to be able to have a place to get outside, out from underneath fluorescent lighting, and into their world and getting them to look at it a different way. Linda described how the naturescape has impacted the school community and brought them together. More of an awareness, I think. We've, uh, we have a large Aboriginal population at the school. About a third of our students are Aboriginal. 
So the peace poll that the administrator at the time, um, Tony Kernahan, organized getting a peace poll here, and it, in English, French, and Cree, it says, may peace prevail on the earth. It's just a very respected site. It's really more than I ever hoped for when we were putting this together. Plus, it was completely a community effort. This is not a one-person um, activity. Not only were the students involved, but community members also took part in the creation and maintenance of the space. Everybody in the community has had a part in planting flowers that we've had donated from Lois Hole and anonymous donors. Postal workers have come by at the time when we're planting flowers and have participated as well. Um, a neighbor just around the corner showed up with a wheelbarrow one day when she saw our students trying to get all the mulch in here with minimal wheelbarrows. We've seen daycare. Kids come after school here. I've seen, when I've been here on weekends working, I've seen um, students from, their older students, so they're high school students, I think different cultures sitting in here and reading books. And so it is definitely a community, a community site. From Cochrane High School, we spoke to a group of grade 10 and 12 students about the sustainability projects that they're working on at their school. Cochrane High is located in the town of Cochrane, just west of Calgary, and is home to about 800 students. Beginning in the early 2000s, Cochrane High has developed a sustainability committee to get students involved in taking action. So I'm Jessica Pamelia. Uh, I'm Taylor Chase. I'm Montana Lawhorn. And I'm Julia Price, and we're from Cochrane High School on the Sustainable Development Committee. The club is a committee formed by our teachers. It started in 2002 by Ms. Bennett and a previous teacher, Mr. Binder. And since then, it's been a committee of about 14 people each year that come and uh, implement like sustainability into the school and things like that. And the club is totally volunteer, so all the students are really passionate about it. Um, we've got solar panels, we've got 48 solar panels, we have a little mini wind turbine, we have the outdoor classroom, we have recycling bins all throughout the school, so just kind of things like that is what we've done. So last year, me and Taylor, we were in Sustainable, and we worked on the outdoor classroom. So we created um, an entire space that's green and has plants, walkways, benches. It uses the water from the roof to water all the plants. And and it started out as like a giant cement pad with just like a single uh, trash can. So now it definitely looks a lot nicer as well. It's a useful space that a lot of students actually use once the weather warms up to sit outside even like during lunch or even like during spares. It's usually um, being used. The committee is currently working on expanding their hybrid energy system, which is composed of solar and wind power. Well, we've actually been working to create a hybrid system because we have solar panels on the roof, but solar panels only really work during daylight hours and summer months. Whereas if we implement a wind turbine, then we kind of have full 24-hour use, and in those winter months, we're covered where it's more windy. So they produce, uh, right now we produce a total of 6 kilowatts from the solar panels, um, and that the, the turbine that we're looking at right now, the or the turbine that has to be under the REF policy. The only one that, um, the only wattage that is available is 2.5 kilowatts. So that means it will power a few classrooms down the end of the school by the, underneath the solar panels, and the turbine would power the field house. So it does not power the entire school, but it's just an extra step type of thing. 
We asked the girls about their thoughts on the importance of education on sustainable development. Basically, once you start, like, science, even in grade school, you learn, like, sustainability, but you learn more about the definition. You don't really get the feel for it. And I know personally myself, obviously, so you understand it from a textbook perspective, but after joining this and watching all this, like, these um, actions and projects work together, you really get a better understanding of, like, what sustainability is and, like, how it's going to affect our future and how it's affecting us now. As both teachers and students, there's an intimidation factor that goes with sustainability. We're afraid that it's going to be really hard and we don't know where to start. Both Linda and the students from Cochrane High shared with us some advice on how to get started. Um, I think a lot of it would be checking into grants first of all to see what's available because you do have to work with within your school budget as well and working with especially with Edmonton Public with facilities and maintenance because you don't want to surprise them with a project like this you don't want to go and do all the work get the the go-ahead and then contact them and say this is what we're going to do because they have their job to do as well I guess you have to consider how much time you want to put into it as well it does take an awful lot of time that would be it and don't just be discouraged uh, if you need help ask for it don't try to do it on your own because you, the more people who buy into any project the better off it's going to be and the more successful it's going to be I would say is just like take that first step. I know it's like hard to say when you're not uh, have like you don't have the resources to do that. But even if you just get like one recycling bin in your uh, lunch room area, it will kind of like show the other students that there is a different way to be sustainable. And it's not all about these huge big projects. It is just about the little things. And especially since we've been in sustainable, I can definitely see myself in everyday life being like, oh, I gotta make sure I just recycle that or put that in the The girls talked about how they learned to apply for grants. Um, I, I think our teachers really helped us out with that one. Um, originally, what they said, like, okay, fine, grants, and they'll fill out for us. But then it got to the point where it's like, well, you guys should come in. And then they would walk us through the process of applying for grants. So we'd come in, like, maybe after school or on weekends and then come in with all these grants. And now they'd, like, help us um, fill them out. Linda pointed out some grants that are available in Alberta. A lot of it is with BP Energy, those grants as well. Uh, the Naturescape was Toyota Evergreen grant. There are so many grants out there to help students with uh, sustainability projects. The um, Alberta Emerald Foundation as well has a youth grant that we've accessed several times. clear that all people have a role to play in working towards sustainable development. Teachers, students, administration, school boards, and community members all have the power to contribute to change. This change doesn't need to be on a massive scale. Little things like turning off the light when not in use or using less paper are simple ways to get started. However, we've also seen that big projects are doable. 
That was University of Alberta students Nicole Richard and Paula Daza speaking with Alberta teachers and students about sustainability education. For more information about Nicole and Paula's project, We the Future, visit our website at terrainforma.ca. Our second archive piece this week comes from Ecuador, the first country in the world to establish the rights of nature at a national level, including it in the 2008 Constitution. In 2013, Tara informant Nicole Wiart spoke with Dr. Kelly Swing of the Tiputini Biodiversity Station in Ecuador about how this constitutional change is great in theory, but in practice there are a lot of hurdles still to overcome. It's an ancient Quechua term meaning good living or the good life. It's a term that has permeated through all aspects of Indigenous life in South America and in 2008 was incorporated at a national level into Ecuadorian constitution as a way to give nature rights. It was introduced as an alternative to development, not to say that Ecuador was aiming to be underdeveloped, but developed differently. While development puts life at the service of growth and accumulation, Smak Kweswai places life first with institutions at the service of life. It's about living in harmony and not in competition. Smack Koswai, good living, seems like a great idea in theory, but how do you implement something similar in countries like Canada or the States? And once it has been implemented, how do you put such a concept into practice? So I asked Dr. Kelly Swing, an American ecologist who has lived in Ecuador since the early 90s. He is the co-founder of Tipitini Biodiversity Station in the Amazon, a professor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito, and an expert on all things environment. Here in Ecuador, nature has rights, and you don't see that in any other country around the world. How do you approach a topic like that, um, you know, a topic like nature as a, as a human, not a human being, but... But as a being. As a being. Uh, you know, that's represented in the legal system. Yeah. How do you approach something like that, maybe in, in the States or in Canada? Well... I would tend to say that what a novel idea, what a wonderful idea to to provide uh, basically the the planet and our surroundings with the same rights that we have. It's really hard to to do that in some respect because you know those inanimate things don't have a voice for themselves. And so what that means is it automatically sets up a situation in which okay, nature has rights, but now somebody has to speak for her. Um and of course, I would tend to say, just stick your head out the window. Nature will speak for herself, and she does it quite eloquently. From my perspective, some people look out the window and they say, "Yeah, it's a bunch of trees or something like that," right? So, it's it's all a matter of perspective. But I think this idea of giving nature rights on a legal scale is a really interesting idea, and I have a feeling that over time it's going to become. Uh, more and more contagious. That other countries will adopt uh, the same kind of, of perspective about nature, um, and the and the reason the reason I say that is is because it just makes a lot of sense. If we if we want to live, and this is also part of the Ecuadorian Constitution, right? we, we uh, assign rights uh, to nature, but we also have these rights that are that are associated with people. <clears throat> we always talk about 
inalienable rights for, uh, for, for the, the people in the U.S., certainly. But one of the rights for Ecuadorians is to live in a balanced environment. And of course, if, you, if you're going to guarantee that kind of situation, those kinds of conditions for the people, then obviously the other side of that is that, well, nature has to, has to be intact, at least at, uh, at some level. It has to be sufficiently intact to function and provide air and water and, and absorb carbon dioxide and all those kinds of, of ecosystem uh, services. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a completely logical kind of extension of the, this idea of, of providing people with the right to have uh, you know, a healthy environment. I think those clauses uh, in the Constitution are are really innovative, and I think what that means is there's a tremendous potential here for the development of a very different mentality. But in practice, so far, there have been very few lawsuits or you know cases that have been uh, brought before uh, the justice system to to actually test these laws. One of the first tests of the you know, nature's rights laws was a lawsuit against the municipality of the, of the city of Loja, kind of in southern Ecuador, because they were building a road and all the materials uh, from that road, like from the deforestation and the road grading and everything, were just being poured into a river. And it caused some real problems with the flow and it changed, changed the nature of this river. And that was brought uh, before the legal system uh, you know, at a very local level and it was basically dismissed. It was, there was an appeal, and upon appeal, nature's rights were, were recognized, and you know, the decision uh, was that the city of Loja, or the municipality of Loja, had to uh, pay for the remediation of these environmental impacts. And so a lot of us said, you know, the language in the Constitution is, that's gonna cause an avalanche of outcry from people all over Ecuador saying, well, in my neighborhood they did this, and over here there's around this oil operation they did this, and in this place they cut down this entire forest and they, they, they've uh, established a, a, a gigantic oil palm plantation. And so they've eliminated all this biodiversity and that's impacted me and that's impacted the future for ecotourism or whatever. That didn't happen. There has been no outcry. There has been no inundation of lawsuits. There's been, I think now, like a half a dozen. But the one that I talked about before, that yeah. got that actually got the uh, a ruling that nature's rights had been violated. Now we're like a year and a half down the road after that sentence was handed down, and not one dime has been spent on remediation of that river, nothing. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's pretty rhetoric uh, in the Constitution, but in practice, it's not meant anything. Why? Why? Because there's not. There's not the political weight behind that, and the laws have no teeth, right? It's just like, well, yeah, it's there. It looks nice, but it's not, you know, in practice, it's not real. It's not, it's not made tangible. Terran former Nicole Weart speaking with Dr. Kelly Swing of the Tiputini Biodiversity Station in Ecuador. 
Well, we've come to the end of our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more stories like this, or if you want to find out more information about any of this week's headlines, please check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to our contributors Amanda Rooney and Shelly Jadwine for keeping us all afloat during the past summer months. I've been your host, Cindy Carbonic. Catch you next week for another episode of Terra Info.